folks. Uh, welcome back to Return to the Telepodcast, a show about shitty horror movie sequels, prequels, reboots, uh, you know, everything. I'm Bryce Patterson, and I'm joined by my co-host, Kevin Serrano Echeverria. Hello, everybody. So if this is your first time joining us, here's the deal. Uh, basically, each episode of the show focuses on an iconic horror movie with a shitty sequel, prequel, reboot, uh, whatever. Kevin and I look at the original film, uh, talk about what made it so great and how the sequel fell short. And then we pitch each other ideas for, you know, different directions that the story could have gone. This week, we're talking about Wes Craven's 1984 film, A Nightmare on Elm Street, and its 1985 sequel, A Nightmare on Elm Street 2, Freddy's Revenge. Yes, I'm very excited to talk about these films. I, I love them so much. So, so much. <laughs> yeah. Yeah, I mean, I think this is going to be interesting, right? Because, like, neither of us thought that the second one was shitty. Um, no, absolutely not. Uh, I actually think the second one was an improvement on the first one. It's not perfect by any means, but, like, in my opinion, at least, it is better than the first Nightmare on Elm Street. Yeah, we're going we're gonna to have a stimulating conversation, I think. Because, like, I honestly, I don't, I don't know. They, they feel so so different and like the things that i love about the second one like don't exist in the first one at all right you know or they they feel so um yeah they just feel really different oh yeah yeah the tone absolutely just changes so much between the first two movies uh which i think is a good thing ultimately which we will get into but yeah yeah well so i mean i guess to start us off like what um what's your history with nightmare on elm street so Nightmare on Elm Street, I, I watched the first one oh, a long, long time ago. I don't even remember how old I was, probably like a child. Um, I think I watched it the first time just because I was like literally just scrolling through channels on Dish Network because you could do that back then. And I just like watched it and I thought it was really fun. Like even when I was like 12, 13 ish years old, I wasn't scared by it at all. It's not a very scary movie, I will say. It, it has a lot of gore. Well, it is a fair amount of gore. By gore, I mean literally just blood. There is a lot of blood. But besides that, it is very... I would say of, of the slasher movies that we've seen so far, it's fairly self-aware. Like, it's kind of comedic in a lot of points. Mm-hmm. Um, and I got that like immediately once I was like uh, when I was that young. And I enjoyed it very much. The second one, I saw for the first time... <sighs> A while ago, I didn't think I, I I don't think I saw all of it because I don't I didn't remember it being this um, explicit. But I did see like a good chunk of it a while ago. I think it was like a freshman in, in college, something like that. And I mostly just wanted to watch it because like I heard that it was like Nightmare on Elm Street, but much more gay. And yeah, that is what that is. <laughs> yeah, it it delivers. <laughs> It very much delivered on that, which is exactly what I was looking for. Yeah, you know, it's funny. My um, my first kind of experience with Nightmare on Elm Street, my mom is a horror fan, but I, I would say like uh, she doesn't do um, doesn't do a lot of gore. You know, she loves like a really good ghost story, and so like I grew up on you know the old black and white like Universal monster pictures and stuff, right? Uh, which I, I'm sure I've talked about on this podcast before at this point. Um, but she had seen Nightmare on Elm Street back in the day and had found it kind of like traumatizing, um, where it really, 
was like nasty for her. And so I never, I don't think I saw it until I graduated college maybe. Um, but I remember going in kind of expecting like, oh yeah, this is going to be some hardcore shit. Right. And you know, it's, it's fun, but I, I don't have the same love for it as I do some of the other like slasher uh, franchises, I guess. Like, I like it, but I don't love Nightmare on Elm Street the same way right. that I love Texas Chainsaw. Yeah, it's very weak on the... If you're looking for, like, a traditional, like, horror movie or even, like, a traditional slasher movie, even though, like, Nightmare on Elm Street goes through the tropes, it isn't very horror-y, necessarily, if that makes any sense at all. Yeah, yeah, and I think we'll we'll get into that, that I think... There's some really cool, like, surrealism to the film, and I think that's actually a lot of what makes it so interesting. Yeah. Um, Which, I mean, obviously, that kind of blending of reality and dreams is kind of one of those fundamental building blocks of the film. But a lot of that is kind of, you know, it's not necessarily, like, surrealism in a horror sense is more just really odd. You know, like, the moment that uh, Freddy's tongue comes out of the phone and, like, licks Heather Langenkamp. I love that scene so much. Yeah, yeah, and it's like it's not scary, but it is interesting. It's just really fucking weird. Yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> Even like the scene where like Johnny Depp like gets like sucked into like his bed and emerges as like a fountain of blood. Like the first time I saw that, I thought that was hilarious. Yeah, because like I'm just like, how much blood does Johnny Depp have that he's just like spewing all of this out? <laughs> He's, uh, yeah, a lot of fluid going. He has a um, lot of fluids. Johnny Depp is very much filled with fluids. Yeah, pretty heavy on the fluids. Heavy on the fluids. Cool. Well, I will, uh, I'll <clears throat> summarize the first film really briefly. A Nightmare on Elm Street follows a teenager, Nancy Thompson, who realizes gradually that she and her friends are having recurring nightmares around the same kind of creepy figure. At a sleepover with her best friend, Tina, Tino's boyfriend, Rod, and Nancy's boyfriend, Johnny Depp, Tina is murdered in her sleep. Rod flees, realizing that he is the obvious suspect. Nancy's policeman father arrests Rod, who is murdered by Freddy in his sleep, though the event is staged as a suicide. Nancy starts hitting the caffeine hard to avoid falling asleep, and eventually her mother confesses that Freddy Krueger was a convicted child killer who escaped prison on a technicality. The parents of the community burned him alive. Nancy sets up booby traps, kind of Roadrunner style, all around the house. Or Home Alone, I guess. I'd say more and, Home Alone style. Yeah, yeah, very Home Alone, actually. Um, so she sets up booby traps and pulls Freddy into the real world and kind of beats the shit out of him with different things and manages to set him on fire. And eventually she realizes that it's her fear that powers Freddy, so she turns her back on him and he disappears. And then at the very end, uh, with all of her friends alive again, uh, Nancy is getting ready to leave for school when Freddy grabs her mother through the door. And then there's some kids playing jump rope, singing the creepy, like, one, two, Freddy's coming for you song. I love that. I love that trope in horror movies where it's just like a child, like a children's song, but it's slowed down. So it's creepy. Like, I want yeah. them to do that with, like, literally every children's song. Baby Shark. Baby shark, do 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 do, baby shark. <laughs> I kind of love it, actually. I'm 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 sort of down. <laughs> they need to do that for Jaws, the next Jaws movie. They need to yeah. slow down. Yeah. Well, uh, so for you, like, what were the? What do you think? 
are the, are the things that have made Nightmare on Elm Street uh, as iconic as it is. I think, like, as I mentioned before, it is, like, I don't think I want to say, like, the first self-aware slasher movie, but probably the first, like, big, fairly self-aware slasher where, like, it feels like Wes Craven kind of knows what's happening because, like, this was made in, like, the mid-early 80s, right? Something like that. Yeah, 1984 is when it was released, so still yeah. pretty early on the slasher boom. Yeah, but it's, like, uh, I believe after both Texas Chainsaw and Halloween, I think, right? Mm-hmm. Yeah, yeah. So, like, these tropes have already been, like, going on, like, especially with um, Halloween. It very much feels like, without the self-awareness, without uh, any of the surreal comedy-ish aspects of this movie, it would very much just feel like a reboot of Halloween. Um, but what I feel like differentiates it a lot more is the effects, for one. Mm-hmm. Um, while Halloween's effects were really made, I think, in order to kind of play with this like horrific sort of like scene that's happening or to just like in the second Halloween movie make the stakes higher I guess and I'm just thinking like with the explosions yeah 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 um in this film like the effects really used to really amp up both the surreal elements of it and the sort of ridiculousness of everything that's happening because like everything's happening in a dream you can kind of get away with that you can get away with like a tongue coming out of a phone or like literally fountains of blood just like pouring out of something or someone like just crawling up the up the walls and the ceiling like exorcist style. I feel like that works really, really well uh, in both like differentiating like Nightmare on Elm Street uh, from other slasher movies and making it like, I don't know, just more interesting on a narrative level like it just makes it like more it it gives a texture i guess like narrative texture like making something like so ridiculous that it's funny while also still kind of being scary as well yeah when i think there's like two things that you're you're kind of hitting there both like freddy's a killer with a personality which is so you know yeah radically different from the other kind of slasher villains of the time yeah he's Um, like the only one that talks like he has he doesn't have like a significant amount of lines, especially in the first movie, but he does like speak. Yeah, yeah, yeah. No, he absolutely. I feel like he's the main draw, which uh, you know, for a lot of the a lot of the sequels of these slasher movies, it is the killer that's the main draw. But I think in a different kind of way, you know that that Freddy is is funny and like there's like a charm to him in a yeah. way that that's so yeah radically different. And then I think the other thing, I guess, yeah, coming back to that, that surrealism of the film, you know, I've heard it described as um, plastic reality. And I, I forget where where the term comes from. But, you know, this is kind of the height of of practical effects or the point mm-hmm. where, you know, there's little bits of kind of CG stuff that's that's being done. But by and large, you know, what you're seeing on screen is, you know, being being built and so there is, um, I mean, you know, you said texture and I think it's a really apt word, right? That it's, that it's so physical. And so, um, you know, there's the scene where I think Heather Langenkamp is trying to run up the stairs and they're like dissolving into oatmeal or something underneath her. It, it's a very kind of like wet, goopy, fluid kind of movie. And I think that there is something really fun about that. And I, and I think that really differentiates it from, 
you know, it's not just kind of uh, blood spurts, I guess, but it's yeah. sort of like everything is very kind of drippy and gross. And even like Freddy himself is like plasticky and gross and dripping. Because like looking just like at his face, it's very obviously like prosthetics. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Um, it makes him kind of seem like a part of this like unreal sort of like man-made surrealish world whereas like in um texas chainsaw or in um halloween it, it kind of just feels like some dude who just like at least in halloween like bought a mask or in texas chainsaw just some dude who like chopped up some meat and put it on his face yeah yeah it's, it's that interesting thing like i feel like you you can't really separate freddie himself from that 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 plastic reality kind of um otherwise something i was thinking about a lot um with this film is the the use of a budget which uh i I guess in, in in this case right you know it's sort of uh in a narrative sense i guess a budget being something that's ticking down and so we as an audience will follow it as it ticks down and so we have nancy the the main character played by Heather Langenkamp, who, uh, for her, it's like staying awake. And so she's like, got like coffee pots, like hidden in her room and is popping like stimulants and stuff. But it's really interesting because it does have a very different sense of dread than, than other slasher films, right? That it's not that like Michael Myers is in the house and he's after you. It's that like something as basic as sleep is, is what'll end up getting you killed. Yeah. And it's almost like more horrific in that sense, because like you can avoid someone like Michael Myers or you can avoid someone like um, Leatherface just kind of by leaving like where they are. But you can't avoid Freddy because he's literally like in your dreams. Like there's only so long you can go without sleeping. Right, right. And like speaking of budget, I, I also kind of want to note that this is like the first like fairly high budget. Well, at least relatively high budget film that we've like looked at because the budget for it was like about a million dollars and you can like very much tell that yeah yeah i mean it's it's funny right because compared to even so many movies of the time that's still really like relatively small but then on the other hand right yeah if you compare that to halloween or texas chainsaw i wonder compared to the fly i don't really know what the difference would be but yeah you can definitely tell that they like were able to do special effects right oh yeah this is like uh, two or three Texas Chainsaws in terms of yeah. budget. <laughs> yeah, you know, the the one other thing that I wanted to bring up for this, and it, it has to do, so Wes Craven actually grew up in like a deeply like uh, religious, I think fundamentalist household. So he actually wasn't allowed to watch movies, I want to say until he moved out to go to college. I, I forget, but he, he does have this like very religious background. And I think one of the interesting notes about this one is that it's very much kind of, you know, the, the kids are being killed not for their own failings so much as for, you know, the sins of their parents, the, the parents that have killed Freddy Krueger in, in retribution. Right. And it's, it's interesting because at the same time as it does kind of follow the like sex equals death sort of equation of uh, slasher movies that feels much more secondary. You know, like the first two kids to die are the ones who are boning down. Right. But otherwise, it, it, it doesn't feel as much invested in that kind of 
I'm not sure what the word I'm looking for is like maybe like psychosocial kind of no psychosexual dynamic maybe something like that yeah I don't know I, I'm playing with words that are too big for me <laughs> um but yeah that that it's it's very much kind of like the ways that like our the decisions of our parents shape us as people and I think that that's really interesting as well that like children are damned not by their own acts but by the acts of their parents yeah and it's I mean I I, I would still say like sex in some sense plays a role because like freddie is well first of all he's a child abuser and that's why parents go off and like murder him but like he's also like not going after the parents he's going after their offspring as well yeah which fits his mo but like it also like i don't know in a sense it also like punishes the parents for like having sex and having children too so like He's sort of, he's sort of like the uber Protestant (laughs) (laughs) in that, like, you can't have sex for, like, any reason at all. Can't even have sex for, like, procreation. Otherwise, I will murder you. Yeah, no, that's, that's really interesting because, I mean, Freddy himself, I mean, much more in the sequel, right? But in the first one as well, he does have, I don't, he feels like the first killer we've dealt with who, like, has a libido, you know? Um, he's very kind of touchy and tonguey in in a way that you know the other killers we've dealt with really haven't been. Yeah, and like he like stabs or slashes people, I should say, with like these very. I mean, whenever I see any sharp objects in a horror movie, it's phallic. So he, like, he literally <laughs> yeah. has he literally has a bunch of penises in his hand that he kills people with. <laughs> you know that might be the best segue that we're going to get into talking about Nightmare on Elm Street too. Speaking of penises in hands. Speaking of penises in hands, Kevin, would you like to summarize Nightmare on Elm Street 2? I would. I would absolutely love to summarize Nightmare on Elm Street 2. The sub-bottom twink Jesse has moved into Nancy Thomas's former home uh, with his family uh, five years after the events of the first film. So Jesse is having like recurrent nightmares about Freddy stalking him, including like a weird bus nightmare scene thing where like he and like a couple of other students are transported to this weird, like dark, I call it like a pillory dimension where it's just literally like the bus is like stuck on a pillar about to fall and whatever. But, like, Jesse wakes up from that, uh, covered, drenched in sweat, wearing only tidy whities And he kind of just attributes all of these, like, nightmares that he's been having it, having to, like, how hot it's been in his home. Throughout the entire film, really, there, there's a lot of sweat. There's a lot of heat, especially, like, in Jesse's household. Yeah, he's um, very wet all the time. He's a sweaty boy. Jesse is a very sweaty boy. So at school, Jesse gets into a fight with a uh, high school hunk Grady. And they get into a fight after gym class, uh, or in gym class, I should say. And after serving detention together, the two become friends and maybe more. Back home, when he's cleaning his bedroom in a very sexually charged way uh, to the song Touch Me All Night Long by Fonda Ray. I mean, I've done that before. Who hasn't? I mean, yeah. Uh, he's visited by his uh, beard slash love interest, 
Lisa, who is the saddest character of this entire film. During this visit, they both find the diary of Nancy that kind of chronicles the nightmares, spooky events that have been happening uh, in the previous film. So after this, small fires begin to happen in Jesse's home, including the uh, spontaneous combustion of the pet parakeet, uh, which his father accuses him of causing somehow. Uh, but the following evening, Jesse has a dream where Freddy tries to seduce him into killing for him. This whole movie, instead of like Jesse, uh, instead of Freddy, like actively killing people, he's kind of using Jesse as a conduit in which to kill. Uh, so he's having these nightmares where Jesse is trying, or where Freddy is trying to um, kind of seduce him into killing for him. He, much like Nancy in the previous film, he tries to stay up. Uh, by taking a metric fuckload of caffeine pills and Coca-Cola. And eventually this causes him to just like wander the streets in order to try to stay awake. Uh, and eventually he enters a gay leather bar and is caught by his uh, gym coach, uh, Coach Schneider, who's wearing like a full like leather daddy harness outfit. And after this, he takes him to uh, the gym at the school and he makes him run laps. Uh, as punishment, I guess. After Jesse's done with that, he goes to the showers, and while he's there, uh, Freddy emerges, uh, attacks Coach Schneider with various like gym equipment, uh, ties him to the showers like St. Andrew's Cross style, <laughs> just completely just tears off all of his clothes, spanks him repeatedly with a towel, and then kills him by slashing his back. It's very pornographic. It is extremely like. I've seen things that have emulated this. Yeah, well, and I feel like it should be noted, too, like the gym equipment that Freddy is attacking him with is a lot of balls. Like, he is getting beaten down by balls. He is, yes. So the day after this happens, uh, Jesse and him go, uh, Jesse and Lisa go to an abandoned factory, uh, the factory where Freddy once worked. Uh, the only thing they find there is a mouse hidden away in a closet. Uh, that evening at Lisa's pool party, uh, Jesse and Lisa begin having really uncomfortable sex. Like it starts out with them just like making out in a very unconvincing way. And this causes him to like start turning into Freddy. And then Jesse uh, panics and runs off to Grady's house and asks him to like watch him over while he sleeps, to, like make sure he doesn't turn into this like murderous monster. Uh, after they both fall asleep, Freddy comes out and he kills Grady. Uh, so because of this, Jesse returns uh, to Lisa's party again, uh, where he ends up transforming into Freddy, but he can't bring himself to kill Lisa. Uh, although he does end up killing quite a few of the partygoers at Lisa's party. Uh, eventually he escapes uh, to the factory with Lisa following him. At the factory itself, Lisa fights off Freddy and manages to destroy him by confessing her love to Jesse and kissing him. This causes Freddy to essentially spontaneously combust, much like the parakeet. Uh, and Jesse emerges from the ashes of Freddy. So presumably Freddy is dead at this point. So back on the school bus, everything seems cool again. But then Freddy emerges once more and drives the kids to this like weird pillar dimension again. And that is the end of the film. 
mean, I, God, it's hard to even know where to start, right? Because like, <laughs> I guess maybe what do we do with the subtext? I mean, when we were watching this, I know I turned to you as like, at what point does subtext just become like Dom text? Because like, <laughs> I, I think I told you like, after we watched this, that the, like the only thing at the time that really felt as gay as this movie, besides like gay porn, was like, Rocky Horror Picture Show, and even then, it's like only marginally more gay than this. Yeah, <laughs> like the amount of homoeroticism and like kink play in this movie is astounding for something that came out in like the mid eighties. Yeah, well, and it's it's funny, right? Because like, I mean, again, like calling it subtext almost feels like out of place right because yeah like the gym teacher gets stripped down of his leather tied up and then spanked with a towel like i'm not sure how else i'm supposed to interpret that besides like incredibly sexually yeah yeah or even um when jesse and lisa they like start making out and then he runs off to grady's house and like even the way he like wakes his friend up is very like hello i'm right by your bed like (laughs) he walks up he he runs off to grady's house while grady is like sleeping in only his boxers it needs to be said that patterned shirts patterned like button-ups are very much already a gay thing he's wearing like an opened up like patterned button-up shirt like just got out of a pool party just like going into your bedroom while you're fast asleep and just waking you up while you're like in nothing but your underwear like, if my friend did that, I would assume they would want to bone. I think I would, too. <laughs> um, yeah, well, I guess maybe maybe the real question is, like, I mean, I think I, I think we both got the, the sense that it's sort of, like, Freddie is kind of preying on, on Jesse's kind of closeted homosexuality as, like, a way to, uh, I, I guess, get to him, or, like, that's sort of, like, Freddie's way in. I mean, yeah, like, so Freddie very much, like, represents, like, Jesse's, like, internal homosexual desire. I very much like how this film is trying to, like, portray Lisa and Jesse's relationship as, like, romantic, when neither of them really have a whole lot of chemistry together, and there's not really a whole lot of, like, buildup of, like, this apparent romance. The only person that there is, like, this sort of, like, buildup... Uh, of like kind of hating each other and learning to like eventually be really close is with Grady. He feels much more fulfilling as a love interest to Jesse than Lisa does. Lisa kind of just feels like his best friend. Yeah. For our uninitiated viewers, listeners, whatever audience, <laughs> what um would you describe uh, or define beard? So a beard is um, the opposite sex love interest of a homosexual person before they've come out or after they've come out, but they haven't come out to like their family, uh, the world in general, things like that. So for instance, I had a girlfriend when I was in high school, even though I knew by then that I was very gay and I only had her to stay in the closet. That would, that would be a beard. That would make her my beard. Cool. Speaking of Lisa just being his beard, right? Like, right. I think that there's there's totally space in it, maybe like an untapped space in cinema for like just a story about like a gay kid and his beard. I think there's something so sweet about that. There needs to be more movies about a gay kid and his beard. 
And and it feels like that's kind of like what the movie wants to be until at the very end it's like oh no they do love each other and it's like oh honey it's, no it's the forced uh the forced heterosexuality of the film it does not work well <laughs> yeah yeah well I I think it's it's an interesting thing right because on some level it it feels very homophobic that kind of Freddie is is representing Jesse's kind of. I mean, yeah, it is homosexuality. It is because like Freddie is again this like child abuser, and like there's a long history of like uh, homosexual homosexual men especially being seen as child abusers. So like for Freddie, like a murderous uh, pedophile, <laughs> to represent like Jesse's like gay tendencies is kind of fucked up. Yeah, no, I totally agree, and then there's maybe the other side of it where I'm just like, but I just love how gay this movie is, is, you know? I love it. I I adore this movie so much. You don't even know. (laughs) Yeah, no, I mean, I think there's something like, I mean, I know we've talked about this since our first episode, right? The ways that like changing the identities of the people in a film just changes the narrative. And I think there's so much space for a really gay slasher like this. And I think it, it it's, it's really fun and ends up feeling really playful in a lot of ways. Cause I mean, I think the, the makers of the film for years were very like, Oh yeah, we don't know how, you know, it ended up coming off so gay, but like they fucking knew. <laughs> they, did, they had to have known like the, uh, like the, the actor that Jesse portrays is himself like gay. And like, it was like a lot of the film was written to kind of like amp that element up to the point where like they were kind of being homophobic jerks to this actor. <laughs> and then he ended up like quitting acting and going to interior design, which I mean, not to uh, go into any stereotypes, but as a gay person myself, interior design, there are a lot of them. There are a lot of us there. <laughs> <laughs> there are a lot of us. There are many of us in interior design, interior design and nursing. Those are our two things. Yeah, yeah, no, I mean, I think there's, like, um, a really tragic side to the the story of this film, but then also, like, maybe it's because this is, like, Reagan's 80s, you know, we were talking about, like, I simultaneously hope that, like, Nancy Reagan hated this movie and got home oh, yeah. and was like, I am so weirdly turned on by this. I'm sure, I'm sure if they ever watched this movie, they would have to be. Yeah. Nancy Reagan, like, comes off to me as a really kinky motherfucker. Oh, I can see it. I can I definitely see, it. see it. I could definitely see it. But like, it's astounding to me, like how, how like this, like even came out in like the Reagan administration, <laughs> like right at like the height of like the uh, AIDS epidemic, like this like extremely homoerotic horror movie of like a sequel to like one of the biggest like horror franchises ever comes out. <laughs> Yeah. Yeah. No, well, and I, I think it's it's interesting because I, I think that is something that they're they're playing on, right? Is kind of I mean, yeah. I'm sure it's a lot of it comes from like homophobia, of course, but like I don't know. There there there's this like I, I feel like it's it's similar with like Rocky Horror where like we kind of like take the homophobia or like these port negative portrayals of like queer people in cinema or on TV or whatever. And we kind of like take them and kind of like use them as like 
a sense of pride because that's like the only portrayals we have and like what i don't care if like i'm portrayed by this like horny twink bottom (laughs) 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 who's really into daddies like i mean i feel that i've been there i'm still there (laughs) yeah well so i feel like we should talk about like how how light on horror this movie is Hmm. like one of the big kind of like horror set pieces is them being attached attacked by like a possessed parakeet um what did what did you make of that so i i don't think this film needed a whole lot of horror i actually feel like the directors and the writers went in the right direction of like changing uh the tone of the first film which was like horror with like a veneer of like comedy surrealism into this sort of like comedy surrealist movie with a veneer of horror instead Mm -hmm. because i feel like what made nightmare on elm street good was the fact that it was like a kind of comedic ish self-aware horror movie kind of by going into that even more it's kind of differentiating the whole franchise more just making it more entertaining it's making it stand out so much more uh, and I feel like kind of the trajectory of like Freddie as a character, um, as a character who isn't this just like silent, scary, um, like monster movie, whatever, uh, and instead is this like charismatic, seductive almost, even though he looks butt ugly, uh, <laughs> character just in pop culture. I feel like that is the exact correct, uh, uh, correct like direction they should have gone or they went with uh this franchise yeah it's interesting you know and i i wonder if there's a degree too that like in our woke 21st century attitude like oh like this movie probably feels very different right Mm -hmm. that like you know i i'm sure it was pretty transgressive at the time um Whereas now, yeah, like the way that we experience it, like I, I wonder if like the the murder of the gym teacher at the time was like, oh my god, they really went there. Whereas for us, like we're like, oh my god, he's spanking him with a towel. <laughs> <laughs> I'm sure it was. I mean, like in the '80s, like uh, even nowadays, uh, but much more in the '80s, like queer people uh, were very much either seen as like virgins, so like they had no sex drive, or they only had a sex drive both were seen as very negative so like to see this like portrayal of like queer sexuality so in your face uh, must have been extremely subversive to a lot of people especially like to a lot of the audience members uh, of the time who were expecting like this uh slasher movie in vain of like the first film like i'm imagining a lot of like high schoolers took their like sweethearts at the time to watch this and and we're like, I feel, I'm, I'm feeling things, and I feel like we should break up now. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, yeah. That's how we convert people. That's how we, uh, that's how we get people to our side. That's the real gay conversion therapy. It is. It is uh, Freddie literally Freddie through the first break at Stonewall. I can't respond to that. <laughs> um. Yeah. No. I mean, I think this is a really interesting case where, like. Personally, like, I think I could have gone for some more, some more horror, you know, like I, I think it, it does end up being really light as far as like, I think uh, I was reading like Freddie only appears in the movie for like 18 minutes total or something. It's kind of similar to like Hannibal Lecter in Silence right. of the Lambs, you know, where they kind of 
their impact is outsized to the actual like amount of time that they're around. Right. But I do think overall it is a really fun movie. And like, there's, there's definitely something about watching it today that like really amps up the comedy, you know? And like, I think the, the kind of romantic sort of ending of Lisa being able to like fight off Freddie with her love is so hilarious now um, in a way that like, I don't know if a lot of people in the eighties would have kind of, I don't know, been able to like realize how like absurd that is. Um, I mean, it's so ahead of its time. Like, People in the 80s probably were just like, yeah, this is how it's supposed to happen. This is how like heteronormative films are supposed to end. And like now we kind of see that as like they were forced to do this. Like if the writers like were able to like, well, presumably I I should say if the writers were like able to like write the film how they wanted to, he would not have ended up with Lisa. Yeah. Or at least we would have had a very clear like. What a sweet friendship they have and yeah. nothing more. <laughs> yeah, they don't have like any romance until like it's kind of shoehorned in during her like pool party. Yeah, when even when they do, yeah, the, the scene where they're in like the cabana or the changing mm-hmm. room or whatever, and like I don't know what the opposite of steamy would be, Dry. but it's that. Yeah, it, it is <laughs> just like the least like sexual sex scene i've possibly ever seen like the whole thing is like oh oh this is one-sided at best (laughs) and it's so funny that like the sex scene in the film the actual sex scene is the least sexual part of the whole film you know one last thing i feel like we just have to talk about like when jesse and lisa go to the abandoned factory where Mm -hmm. freddie used to work he sees a closet and just zeroes in on it. It's like all this like old industrial equipment and stuff lying around. And he's like, no closet. That's the thing that I have to interact with right now. There's, there's a lot of closet imagery. There's so much closet imagery. Like you can't escape it. Do you have any any last thoughts on Nightmare on Elm Street 2 before? I, I feel like almost with pitching, it's like not really pitching right. better sequels, but just like, I guess, other directions they could have gone. I don't know. I don't know if we could like hit on something <laughs> as perfect as this movie. <laughs> I mean, final thoughts on it, like Nightmare on Elm Street 2, in my opinion, is a much better film than the first one. It's not... It's not perfect, and a lot of it has to do with the fact that it was made in the 80s. But, like, even from, like, a narrative standpoint, it's much more interesting and much more, um, it stands out a lot more than other slasher films at the time. It kind of, like, takes the whole, like, damsel in distress, last girl thing and kind of flips it on its head. Instead of, like, a last girl is a last boy, and he gets saved by his love interest. His girlfriend. His girlfriend. (laughs) At the end. Totally. They love each other. They are madly in highly sexual, heterosexual love. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah. Yeah. I would definitely say like, as far as like slasher sequels go, this is one of the better ones that I've seen. Um, it, It very much is like a movie that's worth watching, even if it's only for the kind of, 
I don't know, postmodern irony of like, yeah. oh, those sweet 80s people. It is so camp. It is very camp, and I love it for that. Yeah. Cool. Well, so let's talk about pitches then. What um, what thoughts did you have as far as like sequelizing Nightmare on Elm Street? So I feel like what they did with the second movie already is perfect. I would just make it more gay. <laughs> <laughs> and I don't know if I can do that without turning it into porn. Because like, where do you go from there? I mean, it toes the line the entire way through. It feels like it's about to turn into a porno like 10 different times. Yes. And I know that from experience. But <laughs> I, I I think I would like make the movie not try to be like so heterosexual at the end. I would I would make Lisa like the victim instead of a Grady, for example. Mm-hmm. Um, and then Grady's love interest at the end, obviously, because he has to be. Yeah. Yeah, well, I mean, I think there is even, like, the slight pivot of, like, even if you maintain every other element of the plot with, like, Lisa, like, uh, saving Jesse through the power of friendship and not, you know, romantic love. Yeah, that would also work. Like, it could either be, like, a fun, like, romance movie about, like, a sub-bottom, like, just saving his top daddy, or it could be, like... A fun, like, little romp about, like, a little gay boy and his beard. Yeah, you know, I I like either of those. And I actually think that, like, you know, if they were to, like, remake this film today, there's a lot of space for for a film about, you know, a closeted teen, you know, and just, like, making it very explicit that Laura's his beard, or not Laura, that Lisa's his beard. (laughs) I mean, I would go to see that. I think that sounds like a blast. Yeah, I feel like it's in a really interesting direction, uh, especially nowadays for, like, fairly obvious reasons there isn't a lot of films about like closeted teens like love sign was like the last one i can think of the whole movie is about him coming out of the closet i feel like it'd be interesting especially from like a queer history standpoint to like have a movie set in the 80s about like a child who is deeply in the closet yeah no i'd be super up for that the pitch that I had, I mean, I kind of felt like, I don't know, I'm trying to just think about like a, a, a fairly different sequel just to give it a shot. Mm-hmm. Um, and so my thinking is potentially focusing on the parents for the sequel, right? So we know that they burned Freddy alive. He comes back and kills their children. And so then I think it would be really interesting to kind of flip back to them, these kind of like middle-aged or aging parents, like realizing that, you know, it is up to them in the end to stop Freddie kind of once and for all. Um, I like that. Like, I will say that, like, out of all the characters in the first Nightmare on Elm Street, probably my favorite characters were the parents, especially Nancy's mom. Oh my god, I can't believe we haven't even touched on her with her like hidden bottles of vodka in like every room of the house. She just keeps pulling them out like she has like a weird like space-time dimension where she just like can pull out bottles of vodka wherever. She has like those cartoon like pockets filled with vodka. Yeah. Yeah, no, she is such a hilarious character. I love her. Um, I, I I stand her. This is a Nancy's mom stan account. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Um, yeah. When I think that there's a few kind of maybe interesting ripple effects that we could get from focusing on the parents. 
one thing i mean just fundamentally right if if they killed freddy and he's come back and killed these teens then at least a few of the characters would know from like the opening of the film what they're dealing with uh so it's less kind of somebody being like hey i keep seeing the same guy in my dreams too and more you know them trying to actually set out and figure out how to deal with him and it also makes me think about you know um so we talked about the budget in the first film that that nancy um can't fall asleep and so then the whole movie is kind of us figuring out like oh when's she gonna fall asleep and so then thinking about well okay so if we have these characters that know that from the very beginning then maybe we're looking at a different kind of, you know, uh, timer that's running out. Maybe mm-hmm. the parents take turns sleeping in shifts and we have kind of them, them collectivizing in, in, mm-hmm. in some way to take on Freddy. And that feels to me like it might be an interesting dynamic shift. There would have to be a scene at the end where Nancy's mom does like a whole like Ellen Ripley and it's just like, get away from her, you bitch. You bitch. <laughs> <laughs> Yeah, I mean, I'm up for that if she gets into the, like, what, the the, the big claw machine thing. Yes. Um, big claw machine, but it's made out of vodka. <laughs> but it's made out of vodka. Yeah, I mean, she would be a really compelling central character, you know, because, I mean, I guess we have the problem of her being kind of killed, uh, theoretically, at least at the end of the first movie. But maybe that was a dream, or... I'm, 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 making, I'm making the assumption that it was a dream. Because, like... Because, like, she gets sucked up into the door like a fucking blow-up doll. Yeah. I mean, like, like very <laughs> obviously is a doll. <laughs> so I'm guessing that that is a dream. Yeah. You know, and I'm I'm maybe 80% sure. I remember I watched a thing about the making of this film not too long ago. Um, and I'm, like, maybe 80% sure that that was actually something that the producers were like, we need one more scare. So I don't think Wes Craven even wanted to include that scene. Right. And it does look terrible. It's, it's really bad. It's, yeah, it's so bad. We'll say it, so is I mean, like a, it is like a standard of the Nightmare on Elm Street movies to kind of end with like not knowing whether or not people are, are still in the dream and then them getting killed off, maybe. <laughs> they do that in the remake terribly. Yeah, no, that's super fair. And I mean, I think, you know, I want to say it starts with Carrie. Friday the 13th does the same thing. Mm-hmm. and um, Yeah, so it, it very much is like a, a trope of the genre. And I feel pretty comfortable retconning that and being like, nope, the mom survives. She's the main character now. Bring on the vodka. Bring on the vodka. Nice. Well, do you have any, um, any last thoughts on Nightmare on Elm Street? Nightmare on Elm Street 2 is amazing. Please watch it. Nothing is wrong with it besides the homophobia. But if you get past the homophobia, if you embrace the homophobia, if you reclaim the homophobia, if you reclaim Freddy and make him a gay icon like he is, make him the gay icon he deserves to be, it is an amazing film. Please watch it. Also, uh, the first one's really good as well, if anything, for Nancy's mom. Yeah, and if nothing else, just watch the scene where the gym teacher gets murdered because, like... Watch that while you're at home and if you live with your parents while they are out. <laughs> yeah, you don't want your roommate to walk in on you watching uh, on many, Street 2. There will be many questions and much tension after that. Conversations that, you know, maybe need to be had. Probably. Return to the Telepodcast is a production of Silent Machine Studios 
featuring music by My Silent Machine. If you enjoyed this episode, like, subscribe, and do whatever else you usually do with podcasts, I don't know. Thank you for listening.